Recently, I uh, read an article, and uh, this goes back a couple months, and the reason I, I came upon this article is, is I'd read all these articles about this article. I heard all these people talking about how great this article was and that this guy had written an article about what it means to be truly wealthy and all these things, and what he said was so great and refreshing. And so I went and sought out the article, and I found it. It was from a guy. Uh, he wrote the article anonymously, but he had... Uh, retired as an investment banker and apparently made a whole lot of money and did all these great things. And now he was a teacher. And so as I read through the article, it kind of summed it up. And just this is from the article of what he says. And this is what he says, what it means to be truly wealthy. He says, when you have enough assets plus passive income to cover your personal lifestyle expenses for the rest of your life, and that money allows you to work at something you love without concern for the amount of compensation, then you are truly wealthy. And so he was lauded for his opinion, and a lot of people made a big deal about that because what they said was, what he said is, if you've got enough money to then do what you truly love and you don't have to worry about money anymore, that's what it means to be really wealthy. And, uh, you know, everybody said, oh, that's so great, and it's a way to define success and what that means and what that looks like. And, and uh, as I started to think about that, it's, it's not that it was completely evil or bad or completely wrong what he was saying. He really was, you know, what everybody was latching onto is the fact that he was saying that he was now free to do that, which he really loved and, and go after that. And it wasn't just about making money, but about doing other things. But what kept coming to my mind is I kept reading that and I kept reading these other articles about that article and, and going back and, and reading people's comments about what they would say about the articles is, is what you got is, is this picture that being successful and being happy and being truly wealthy is very closely tied and related to your personal finances. That's really what they were saying over and over. Yes, you want to be free to do these other things, but you need a lot of money to be able to now be free to do these other things. And that's what it really looks like. And I kept thinking about that idea of, of having enough money to pursue other things and what that looks like. And, and that worldview and that picture of, of our happiness being so closely tied to our finances and uh, as I thought about that worldview and that picture, I kept going back and kind of rereading some of those articles that week because uh, as we, we continue in our series today of following Jesus, we started this last week. We're going to see Jesus have a conversation with a young man that would kind of fall into that worldview in a lot of ways, a very wealthy young man. And so I was thinking about this picture of this worldview and the way that we see things in our world and the ties that we see between financial wealth and success and happiness and how all that goes together. And then we see Jesus come face to face with a young man that seems to be kind of holding on to those same things. And so we're going to see this conversation of Jesus and what we we often uh, title it the rich young ruler. Uh, it takes place. The, the passage we're looking at, Chris read for us in just a, just a minute ago in Mark chapter 10. It's also in Luke's gospel in Matthew's as well. And so what I want us to do in this series, and we talked about this last week, is we're looking at where Jesus goes and who he talks to and how he interacts with people and what that looks like. Because if we're really seeking to follow Christ in all things, then it's pretty important we see what he said and where he went and who he talked to and how he did that and what that looks like. And so this morning, as we continue in that, we're really going to look at this idea of this worldview that's very pervasive in our world and what happens when Jesus comes face to face with it and how he sees it a little differently and how he kind of corrects some things. And so that's what I want us to look at this morning, that interaction. But before we do, let's pray and then we'll look at that passage together Lord, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the ways that it uh, points us to you, that it helps us to see more fully uh, your glory in your face. And that's what we seek to do this morning. We want to see you more fully and we pray 
that you'd come and move through your spirit, that you would enlighten our hearts and minds to see the truth of your word. I pray that if there's areas where we're we don't have things in the proper order that you would convict us of that and point us to how you want us to see things. And uh, I pray that you would also encourage us this morning that we'd leave here having seen you more fully, that you would be glorified and honored in this time. We just ask that you would be leading and guiding this time and everything that is said and done would be pleasing and honoring to you. We pray all these things in Jesus name. Amen. And so as we look at this, this is the way I want to go at it. I've said this the last few weeks I've been trying to point this out more often. There is an outline, just kind of my four big points. There's actually four today. I've moved up from three to four. I don't usually do that. And so there's four, but the four main things here that we're going to look at, first of all, is just how this young man that Jesus is talking about, how he sees the world, right? His worldview. Secondly, how Jesus sees it. And I just submit to you, if Jesus is God in human form, which we confess to believe, then the way Jesus sees it is how it is, right? So we'd say how the young man sees it, how Jesus sees it or how it is. Thirdly, how do we move from how he sees it to how Jesus sees it, how it really is? And then lastly, what are the outcomes of both? Because Jesus tells us, he shows us kind of both in this little story here that Mark's recorded for us. So let's just start with how does uh, the man that Jesus is talking with, how does he see it? What does his worldview look like? And so the picture is the, the young man comes up to Jesus and he's walking along and teaching and going and there's all kinds of followers. I mentioned this last week. It just helps to have it in your mind. Jesus's earthly ministry as he's preaching and teaching is three years and we get to the third year and it's really the year of opposition where people are very divided over who Jesus is. And, and that's where we are. This, this passage takes place in a few months before the crucifixion. And, and so you're, you're towards the, in the latter part of Jesus' ministry. And so this guy comes up and he comes and he's asking Jesus some questions. But as you see how it goes and you start to kind of look what's behind those questions, I think what you start to see, what starts to come to the surface, is really the guy showing up looking for validation about what he's doing. Right? He's asking some questions and it appears that he's kind of asking some questions to get Jesus to pat him on the back and say, good job. You're doing well. Keep doing that because it kind of comes loaded in these questions and you see him doing that. And what you see is him. What comes out in the conversation is that this young man uh, is getting his validation. He's getting his identity. He's getting a lot of how he feels about himself from two things, two different things that kind of come out in this conversation with Jesus. And I want us just to think about that for a second, his validation of, of, of what he's trying to be and his identity, what he's getting that from. And it comes out here. Look at verses 17 to 20 as this interaction takes place. He comes up and he kneels before Jesus and he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And so he comes up and he addresses Jesus as good teacher. Right? There's, there's some things under the surface that Jesus kind of brings out, even the way he responds to him. But what we get there is this picture that people are, are basically good and they can do good things. And he's coming seeking validation for what he's doing. Right? What must I do to inherit eternal life and good teacher? And you kind of see those things under the surface. And so what Jesus does is he kind of meets him where he is and he points him to the Ten Commandments. And he starts to relay back the Ten Commandments to him and he starts to hit on these things. And so what does the young man say? He says, oh, I've done those. I've kept them since my youth. 
I've been doing those things, and for the most part, I'm, I'm, I'm following those along. And so I was thinking when he says that, I've done all these things since my youth. Does he really believe that he's done all these things since his youth, right? Because right, right in that list, you know, as Jesus starts to relay back the Ten Commandments, yeah, he, he may not have murdered, he may not have committed adultery, but what about false witnesses? Has he ever lied? Right? Because he says, I've kept all of these since my youth. And I started to think about that. Does he really mean that he's kept all of them? I ask people that question often when they're talking about morality and how good they are and that kind of thing. Have you ever lied? Have you ever? I've, I've yet to meet a person that says they've never told a lie. I personally in my life have never met anyone that says I've never told a lie. And so I was thinking about that with the, with the rich young man. Would he really say I've never told a lie? Or would he say, like most modern people say, well, for the most part, I don't lie. I try to be honest. I try to be good. I try to keep the best that I can. And so I was just curious, thinking about that picture. Would he really say he's never done any of those things? And so, but the, but the picture here, and what, what I want you to see, the way he's seeking validation is the way he answers that is, yes, I've kept them all. Is he's trying to seek validation and, and, and kind of his identity by how good he is by what he's done in his life. And you see that there the way he says it, right? That, his, that his, uh, he's done all these since his youth. And so the first way that he's seeking this validation in his life is by his works. How good he's doing, how well he's keeping the Ten Commandments, how uh, faithfully he's walking to those things. But that's not the only thing. There's another thing there that's a little more subtle that you see is so tied with his identity as he has this conversation with Jesus. And you see it in verses 21 and 22, right? So he says, I've kept these from my youth. And then Jesus, looking back at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. And the second thing I think that comes to light in what you see here is he goes away upset disheartened and upset. And the reason he goes away said is Jesus has just called him to give up his great wealth to help those in need. And he can't do that. It is so tied to who he is and his identity as a person and what he's doing that he says, I cannot do that. He doesn't say it in those words, but that's what his actions say. He takes off, says disheartened. He goes away sorrowful because he had lots and lots of stuff. And so what you get here is that his worth and his identity and who he is is very much tied with his wealth, with what he has. And so as he goes away, he goes away sad because there's something in his life he cannot live without. There's something in his life that is so core to his identity. And so what you see when you see this young man, you see in just a few short verses, you see this picture of his life and his worth and his his identity and his validation are tied up in how moral of a person he is, I'm doing these things really well, and his wealth, what he has. And I couldn't help but think as I read that, and I read that over and over, that sounds pretty familiar. Sounds a lot like those articles I kept reading this week. If you have enough money, and then you can do these things and do what you really love and go out and seek those, that's what it looks like. That's what happiness is. That's what true success is. It's not all that different from the the rich young ruler here. And it's something uh, that we see a lot in our world. But, but the truth is, when we really stop and think about it, we all have things in our life that we're finding our uh, identity from. 
and we're seeking validation from. Maybe it's not money for you. Maybe it's other things. And I want you just to think about the things that do in your life that just really grip you so much. Right. This young man is getting his identity and how well he's doing. And you can go, well, maybe you say, I don't do that. If I'm really honest, as I reflected and I thought about that, there's times when I blow it. Maybe I lose my temper or I get frustrated or I get whatever or something and I don't handle a situation well. And then I walk off and then I let it bother me for days. I had this happen uh, about a year ago. I was playing basketball and I got really upset with a friend. And we're in the middle of a basketball game, but I kind of lost my temper with him. And then for three days I was miserable. And what I kept saying to myself is, I can't believe I lost my temper with that guy. I want you to think about what's happening for three days. I'm saying this over and over. What was going through my head is, I can't believe I would do that. I'm getting my worth from my moral uh, uh, performance. And it was driving me crazy for days. Oh, I can't believe I'd do that. And then God just so clearly showed me, you are a sinner saved by grace. Right. What do you mean you can't believe you would do that? Right. And it was like, oh, but then it was like, thank you, God, for showing me that. But it was it was eating at me. And what I was doing was exactly what the rich young man was doing, getting my identity and my worth by my performance. And we all do that in different ways. Or maybe it's the things we have. And you may say, well, money doesn't really bother me. That's not really my thing. But have you ever stopped and and and, uh, let it bother you that you're not maybe as successful as you wished you'd be at this point in your life? Or I thought I would have accomplished more right now than I have. And you start to let that beat you up and eat at you and you go, oh, I can't believe I haven't done this or I haven't done that. And what we're doing when we do that is we're getting our worth by how successful we've been in the ways that we measure it. But we all do that in different ways and we fight those those feelings all the time. And I just say that for all of us, we're all in the same boat. We're all a lot like the rich young ruler. We want to be validated. We want people to go, good job. You're doing great. You're successful. You've done this. We all want to do that all the time. And we're always seeking that. And you see that picture here. And so I want you just to consider that that's the way a lot of us see it. That's a lot of the way we see the world in our performance and what we're doing. And so the second thing I want us to move to is the way that Jesus sees it. Because Jesus corrects the guy and calls him on some things and brings some things to light. And so look at verse 21. You know, as I read this over and over this week, I kept thinking, you know, verse 21 is you're coming face to face with the living God of the universe. In one sentence, he completely deconstructs everything this guy's holding on to. In one sentence, verse 21, Jesus looking at him. He loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. And in one statement, one simple sentence, he dismantles the way so many of us search for meaning in our lives. This guy's very sure that he's doing all these things and he's doing it really well. And then Jesus says one simple thing and it's like he goes away dejected. What just happened? You know, there's another passage. I think it helps to kind of to fill in and think about what Jesus says to him. There's another passage in the Gospels where a lawyer comes up to Jesus and he says to him, uh, what's the greatest commandment? And he's trying to trick Jesus. What's the what's the most important one? What's the greatest one? And if you know that story, Jesus looks at him and he says, you love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind and strength. Right? And he says, and the second one is like it. You love your neighbor as yourself. And so he sums up the Ten Commandments in two statements and he does it brilliantly. 
And it says the guy goes away impressed, kind of like, what in the world? He just nailed that, basically. There's nowhere to go from what he just said. But what Jesus does is he sums up the, the beginning commandments that are between man and God. Right? No other God and no idols and don't use his name in vain. Don't uh, keep the Sabbath holy. Love the Lord your God with your whole heart, soul, mind and strength. If you do all that, you'll keep those. And then he says, love your neighbor as yourself. That sums up the rest. You won't steal. You won't cheat. You won't commit adultery. You won't murder. You won't do any of the other things if you're doing that. Right. So he sums it up in that way. And I think in a lot of ways, he's doing the same thing with this young man. Right. What he says to him in a lot of ways, he's doing it right. You can sum up the law, keeping the law perfectly. Right. That's what it takes to be good with God, to be right standing with God is to keep the law perfectly. And so what Jesus does is he reveals his heart of how he's not doing that in one statement. Let me show you exactly what I mean when I say that he tells him to sell all that he has. Give it to the poor. Uh, you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Right. He, he did the second part first here. But what he said is sell your stuff and give it to those in need. Or in another way of saying that is love people the same way you love yourself. The guy went, oh, got so much stuff. That would be really hard. And then the second thing he says is go ahead and store up for yourself treasures in heaven and follow me. Love God. Love people and love God. And what happens? The guy says, ah, and he walks away, dejected. Right? What Jesus just showed him is you haven't kept them all. Right? You just said you've kept all of them. You haven't kept them all. And so what he shows them is how things really are. Right? We often want to make our worth by our performance. And so this guy comes seeking Jesus to pat him on the back and say, you're doing it and you're doing great. And what Jesus says is, ah, you're missing it. And he shows him. You see it even from the very beginning when the guy shows up and says, good teacher, what must I do to have eternal life? To which Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, that can be a bit perplexing on its face because you go, wait a second. Jesus is God. Why would he say, why do you call me good? And ask that question. I think what's going on is the young man comes up seeking Jesus as a rabbi, as a teacher. You're a good teacher. He's not professing that Jesus is God. He hasn't even come to that realization yet. He's not sure of that yet. But yet he calls Jesus good. And he says, wait a second. You think I'm just a man. Why are you calling me good? And so what Jesus does, he corrects on the most base level, very doctrinal truth all the way through Scripture. Man is sinful. We're not inherently good. We've ignored God and we've rejected him in his world. And so we're not good. And so what Jesus is saying and what he's pointing him to and what he's showing us is this idea that you can come to me and you can validate yourself by what you do won't work. You're not good. You can never be accepted by doing that. You'll never do enough. And so that's what Jesus says to him when he when he gives him back this this little statement. Sell your stuff and give it to people. Love people and then worry about building up treasure in heaven and follow me. Love God. And the guy sees so clearly he can't do that. He can't do that perfectly. And he knows it immediately. And so what Jesus is showing so clearly is that that doesn't work. Seeking to validate yourself by your moral goodness and how well you do it will never work. And you'll never get there. And so he corrects that picture that oftentimes we operate out of in our worldview. And we do that so often seeking to make it about what we do. 
Jesus corrects it. And he does this over and over. He corrects it. It's not all about you and what you do. It's what I do for you. You can never be made right with God by what you do. You have to come to me. That's what he's saying to the man. Lay down the stuff and come follow me. Make it about me, not about you. It's the heart of the gospel. When you're seeking to validate yourself before God based on your works, you are going to be crushed under the weight of that because you can't do it. Neither can I. Neither can any of us. And so the beautiful picture here is, is, I just love this when you see the way Jesus says it to him, when he says, Jesus loving him then told him this, right? He looked at him and he loved him. He looked at him and he loved him because he's saying, you can't do it the way you're thinking. Be unloving if I didn't correct you on this, because this is something you could never do. And so he shows him that so clearly. He takes him face to face with that. He takes him face to face with not only that, but the way he says it, he brings him face to face with what is his idol in his life. It's his money. Right? He's getting his trust and his identity and his life from his money. And Jesus knows that. And so he goes straight to, why don't you sell your possessions and give it to those in need? Oh, got him. Right? He, he's caught. He knows that he can't do that because that's where his trust is. That's where his life is. Right? That's what we would call in the Bible idolatry. Right? You get to the Ten Commandments. Right? No other gods. Have no idols. Having an idol is putting anything in God's rightful place. And so when Jesus says, you, you sell this stuff over here and you come follow me, and he says, no, I can't do that. That means it's an idol in his life. He's placed money, his wealth before Jesus. We all do it at different times with different things. And we do it in all different ways. And so the picture here of how Jesus sees it and the way he shows him, how he sums this up, is that uh, you can't do it yourself. You have to come to me. Validation is only found in Jesus, not in what you do. And so he shows them that he reveals that. And so the question becomes, how do you move from the way we often see it working out of our our moral effort and what we're trying to do and trying to be validated to what Jesus says, coming to him and making it all about him? Because that's what he points us to here. And so that becomes the hard question, by the way, before we move to how you move from the second to the third. This passage is not like a a blanket statement that all money is evil or if you have money in your bank account, you're evil or you should sell all money that you have. But what he's showing him and what he's revealing is the picture is if your functional trust in your life, the way that you see yourself, the way that you have uh, comfort, the way you relieve anxiety is because I have money then it's taking too big of a position in your life. If you're putting your trust in your bank account, then there's no place for you to trust God because you put your trust there. It's an idol. And so he shows him that so clearly. But so how do we move from the, from the Jesus's view or the world's view to Jesus's view, what he shows us here. And there's a couple things I want you to think about here as we, as we think about that. How do we lay aside those other things and make Jesus the sinner, you know, if you're uh, not trusting Jesus, maybe you're here today and you go, oh, well, I'm not even a Christian. I don't know about this making Jesus my sinner. Why would I even want to do that? Why is that the case? Or what is often very modern objection. Jesus says no one is good. Only God is good. And people go, wait a second. People do good things all the time. I know lots of people that are not Christians that do really great things 
and they help people and they donate to charity and they do all kinds of things. And you go, wait, wait a second. I, I reject that thought just right there that you're saying that people can't be good at all apart from Jesus. And I want you just to stop and think for a second what your motives are and what you're doing. Right? That's what the Bible talks about. Jesus talks about this a lot. He goes there a lot. He takes us to the very heart of why we're doing what we're doing. And so that's the first step. I'd say if you come today and you're not a Christian and you're not sure about this, to stop and look at the motives of why you do what you do. I know lots of people that, that seek to do really good things. I had this conversation once not that long ago with a friend that was telling me, oh, I want to help people. I want to do more. I want to give to charity. I want to do that. And I just said, why? Why is it that you, well, we should just help people. I said, great. Why should we help people? I agree with you. And I was like, well, you know, we just should. And, and, and when you do, it just makes me feel better. Well, that's awesome. That's great. But you realize your motives for wanting to help people is to make you feel better. She went, oh, I never thought about it like that. Right? I said, well, it's not bad that that helps you to feel better. But think about what your motives are. And so I just say that in all things that we're doing, think about the motives on why we do what we do. And what ends up happening is a lot of times you start to have all kinds of things like that popping up, right? Hey, I'll get that. I'll carry that for you. And in your mind the whole time you're going, look at me. I'm a good person because I'm carrying this. You know, like you're doing these things and they're running through and our motivations are constantly doing that. Right? The picture in Scripture says to really do things out of a right motive or to glorify God, to make it about Him. That it's not about you and it's not about building yourself up, but it's to point to who God is and what He's done. And that is so hard. We, we don't do that so much of the time. And that's the picture. Is that is our sin makes us so self-centered and so selfish in so many ways. Same thing I would say is what are you looking for in your validation in your life? You know, what are you seeking to be and what are you seeking after? Right? Maybe you want riches. You want a really nice car and a big house or whatever it may be. But I want you to think what's underneath those things. Why do you want riches? Why do you want prestige? Why do you want to be really great at your job so people pat you on the back and say good job? And I think what you come to when you really stop and look at that is you want acceptance and you want security and you want uh, just all that, that comfort and all those things that go with it. But what's really underneath all that is you want to be loved. You want to be accepted. You want to have those things. And the picture that Jesus is saying as he looks at this young man and says, I love, he loved him. And so he shows him this is the picture that you'll never get acceptance and love from a car or from money or from a house or any of those things. It's not found in those places. Jesus loving him, knowing that goes, slow down, right? You're never going to get it from those things. And so the picture that scripture shows us over and over is that those things are only ever found in a relationship with God. And that only ever comes through Jesus. And so when Jesus says, sell the stuff and come follow me, he knows what the guy needs more than he does. He's looking right at him and going, all the stuff that you're seeking in your great wealth, all the stuff that you're seeking by, hey, look at how good I'm doing. I'm keeping the commandments. All that you're looking for, he says, is you, you get it in me. That's what Jesus says. And he's showing that over and over. And the picture is because you can't do it on your own. Jesus has to do it for you. 
And that's where the fullness of love and acceptance is found. And it's not based on your performance, but it's based on his performance. He comes and does what we can't do for us. And then he offers it to us as a free gift. And he restores you to the perfect relationship with the one who made you. The one that can only ever meet all those needs perfectly in every way. And so the picture is that it has to be about him and not about us. It has to get outside of you. You have to love God first. And then out of an overflow of that, you love people. It can't be, look what I'm doing, God, please love me. That will never work. It doesn't work that way. And so that's the picture that begins to form. You may say today, uh, well, I am a Christian and I do believe that. But it's not all perfect. When I became a Christian, I still struggle with these things. If we're really honest, that's the truth. All the times we're, we're falling back into making different things uh, temptation. They pop up and that's where I want to get my identity from. Right. We become a Christian and it's all about Jesus and I'm saved by grace. And now I'm going to read through the Bible in two months so that I feel good and validated because I'm reading the Bible really fast and I'm studying it. and I'm doing those. And it's always a constant temptation. That's our flesh. It wants to make us all about us. And so the picture as a Christian of how do we move to what Jesus is really saying is you ask God to reveal those idols. You lay it out before him and you go, show me where I'm putting things in your place. Help me with this. I know I do this. I know this is my flesh. I know that's my tendency. Search me and know me and show me if there's any way that I'm not doing that. And the reason that you can do that is so I just love this passage when Jesus says he loved he looked at him and he loved him and then he showed him where he was missing it. Right out of love, God comes and says, I'll reveal to you where you're putting things in my place. Jesus loves you too much to let you settle for these other things. And so when you ask him, show me the idols in my life, he goes, "Okay." Here's the hard part is it stinks when it happens. <laughs> it's easy to say it, right? I've actually said that to people. Hey, if you see this, I, I, I'll just confess I can be very black and white. It's right here. This is what it says. Now I'm going to tell you. And sometimes I can be real abrasive. And I've asked Chris, I'll use Chris as an example. Hey, when I'm doing that, let me know. And every once in a while, Chris goes, hey, you know, what? <laughs> the way you said that, and I go, ugh. And I kind of want to go, but I'm right. And then he tells me, and you're like, yeah, you're right. You're right. I blew it. And it's hard when you hear it. But then when it starts to have its effect and God starts to show you and he starts to draw you closer, you go, oh, I'm so thankful he told me that. And so we need to be surrounded by others that do that. You need to be asking God to show you those things and bring them to mind. And that's the only way we move to just completely trusting him in all things. And it's not always easy, but he does it because he loves us. Looking at him, he loved them and then he showed them. So lastly, just real briefly, we're about out of time, but just wrapping up outcomes of what happens. I'm going to do this real quickly. You see the young man, the first one, right? Jesus says, you need to give up these things and make me your sinner. And he says he goes away dejected. He goes away upset, right? Disheartened and sorrowful because he had great possessions. And I couldn't help but think, and I always say this, I did it last week, two weeks in a row, there's a C.S. Lewis quote that says it better than I could, right? What happens when we cling to our idols and we walk away? The, the rich young ruler is the perfect picture. 
He walks away sorrowful and upset. C.S. Lewis says it this way. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. But like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. And so here's the rich young ruler going, no, I'm going to hold on to this stuff. He's the child making mud pies in the slum when Jesus is saying, I'm offering you eternal joy beyond anything you can imagine. We're far too easily pleased. I don't know about that, God. I'm just going to hold on to my stuff over here. But then the other side of that is when we do embrace what he's saying and we do follow him and we do make it all about him. And it's at the end of this passage here in verses 29 and 30. Peter says to him, right? Peter goes, well, we have followed you, right? What are we going to get, right? Typical Peter. What do we get out of this? We followed you. We're the ones that are doing this. And so Jesus says, truly, I say to you, there's no one who's left houses or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake or for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life, right? And so Jesus says, if you come and you follow me, you let go of those idols, you're going to get back far beyond anything you can imagine. Right? I want you just think about the picture of the body of Christ that he's talking about. You let go of the idol maybe your family is holding in your life, and then you gain a new family of faith. You gain all these things. You gain this beautiful picture, and then he says, and you get eternal life. You get all this infinitely. You get it perfectly. You know, there's this, pig, there's this little, I just can't stop without at least mentioning. You know, he says you get all these things, and then right in the middle of that, he says, with persecutions. Oh, it's the killer to the health and wealth right there. Like right in the middle, Jesus says, oh, by the way, there'll be persecutions. But what he's saying is what I'm offering you and my joy is so much greater and so much fuller, and I'm everything you need. Even when you're in persecution, it's still better to follow me. It's still all found in me, even with what's going on around you in the outside. And so the picture here is this, that when we follow God, when we decide to follow Jesus, it's going to look radically different than what the world says. But it's going to be far greater than anything the world can offer because he is the answer to all your needs and all your wants and all of it wrapped into one. And so as we just think about that, you know, it kind of sets as we follow, seek to follow Jesus, just the way he says that, the way he reveals the idols of our heart and shows us how we need him. And so let's pray as we end. We thank you, Lord, that you do that. We thank you that you don't leave us right where we are, but you reveal to us that you love us enough not to just allow us to sit in those things that you seek to pull us out of that to show us more fully the ways that you love us and you're moving and you want us to know you. And we thank you for that. I pray that you would help each of us here to do that. Even when it is hard, even when there's times when it's, that it's difficult to admit, I pray that you would continue to show us places where we're putting other things in your place and you would lead us to be fully dependent on you. We just confess, we know, we take you at your word that that is where the greatest joy lies. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Now's the time we're going to worship through our giving.